Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Good morning, good morning. This is one of those Sundays where you have to just do like a congratulations just for making it here, because... It's kind of wild out there in that, those marathon streets. Um, well, I'm glad that you're here. Um, and we are continuing on our series in Romans. Uh, and I wanted to give you just a little bit of a backdrop for how this particular message will be different from the ones that we've gone through before. Uh, because as we kind of looked at our approach for Romans, it's such a dense book that we wanted to not only go kind of chapter by chapter in the expositional way that um, Pastor James has done, but after three weeks of that, we decided to kind of do zoom out and um, ask some broader questions about how this series relates to our cultural moment. And so in light of that, uh, this will be a different approach. Uh, We're going to really just kind of zoom in on one verse, but also kind of make some cultural application points. One of the first things that it's important for us to remember is that this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And um, Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. It was essentially the New York City of its day. It was a very uh, diverse and dynamic place that they really prided themselves on the philosophy and the art and the culture that was created there. And many people still flock from around the world to go see what was created during those times. And actually, it's on a short list for my wife and I to go check out Italy and and go to the different places, and especially like Tuscany and things like that that we want to check out. In fact, one of the largest churches in Europe uh, at the time in in the 1100s, uh, the 12th century, was built um, in Tuscany. But the interesting thing was, in spite of its unique architecture and uh, just design and scope, that's not why most people know it. They know of this particular church, and it's famous because they built a bell tower with an unexpected result. It began to lean. Some of you may be familiar with the leaning tower of Pisa. And the thing is, that's important to note, that's interesting, is like the architecture didn't just say, you know what, what if we did one with a gangster lean? (laughs) Like that that wasn't how it happened. It was built in 1172, or at least the construction began in that time period. But they had to stop to fight some wars. (laughs) And during that time, after like a decade or so, somebody kind of walked by and was like, wait a minute, I think that's kind of leaning. And what they discovered was they had to actually take the bells out. So it was a bell tower, and they had to take the bells out because they were heavy, and it seemed like the, the heaviness, they thought, well, maybe if we take the bells out, that'll work. Well, it didn't work, and over the next several hundred years, what they had to do was keep tweaking and figuring out. They put cables to kind of like pull it on one side. At one point, they put weights on one side of the building until in 2008, they initially announced, I think we fixed it (laughs) for a little while at least. So in case you were doing the math, that's 836 years of construction. And you thought NTA was taking a long time to fix the five. 
But the tower is a reminder of what happens when you do not build on the right foundation. You see, the problem was not the, con the construction materials or the design. The problem was they didn't go deep enough and the soil was soft. And so the soil could not handle and sustain the weight of the building that they were, had created. And though they had the best minds, the most talented artists, the right motives to glorify God, the building wasn't right because the foundation wasn't right. The foundation was faulty. And our lives are the same way. If we build our lives on a shifting foundation, they will not stand the test of time, no matter how ornate, no matter how beautiful it looks. And that's why after 12 chapters of soaring theology, some of the most rich and dense ideas in the New Testament, Paul summarizes his message in Romans 12, 2, and reads, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's several parts there that Paul starts with. He says the first thing we have to do is to not be conformed to the pattern of the world. That's step one. And it's interesting, in some translations, you might see just do not conform to the world. And, and what the, the translators are trying to get at, there's this dynamic word in the Greek, schematizo, which is, 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 is relating here. And schematizo might sound a bit familiar because it's where we get schematics from, or schemas, or a scheme. And, and, and schematics are a diagram that we get that basically show you what to do or what, like how to, what something is for, right? Like we get a schematic when we go to Ikea and it may give us a fighting chance that we're actually able to construct the thing that is in the box. But a schema, a schematic says, this is what the paradigm is, and then this is what it's for and what you're supposed to do with it and how you build it. And Paul is warning them in Rome at the height of civilization that there are schemas, paradigms, and perspectives that in the world attempt to conform it to itself. The default setting of the world that Paul lives in is to conform people to itself in a perspective that goes counter to what he's saying that the gospel teaches. And he says, you have to not be conformed, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Pastor James talked last week about how that transformation from going from blind to sight, going from crawling like a caterpillar to flying and soaring like a butterfly happens when we allow our minds to be transformed. But this is the part that trips me out about that commandment. The command suggests that it's possible for your mind to be renewed but not transformed. In other words, Paul is exhorting them to not be conformed. He's talking to believers because he's recognizing that it's still possible with your, a renewed mind to have that renewed mind um, be subtly pushed and conformed to a pattern of the world that, that is counter to the true sense of what God is trying to tell us. And that is why it's important for us to examine and even deconstruct what we're learning. 
So this is called deconstructing your faith. Now, this is a phrase I didn't grow up hearing a whole lot about, but has become much more common in today's world, this idea of deconstruction. Deconstruction is when we root down into revisiting long-held beliefs and rethinking them. And deconstruction has become a, a popular term in deconstructing your faith because many are rejecting the faith that they had grown up believing. So for example, as far back as 2009, the Pew Research Center on Religion and Public Life said that people are leaving Christianity and religion in general at least five to six times the historic rate that had been. So in other words, it's not just that a, a steady decline like we'd seen in decades past, but it's accelerated at an increasing rate. Another stat says that 35 million young, uh, young people, youth raised in families that call themselves Christians will say that they are not Christians by 2050. And this is not something that many of us have to know from stats. Many of us have seen in our family and our friends, even ministry leaders that we had looked up to or people who had helped shape our faith, a, a deconstruction happening, a, a disassociation with the faith into other things. A disengagement from worship, a leaving of Christian community and fellowship, a denouncing of what the Bible or scripture teaches, a lack of confidence in those things. And if we were to be honest, if I were to be honest, there have been times where I've been questioning and deconstructing. And the, the reality is not all deconstruction is bad. Sometimes there are things that we have to look at and examine and expose and go, okay, now why weren't we able to wear makeup? Like, was that in the Bible? Why was that you going to go to hell if you wore red? You know, if Jesus turned water into wine, then why was drinking alcohol wrong? Like, there are things that were traditions and that were perspectives of people that got bound up into dogma that are valuable to deconstruct. So the problem isn't with deconstruction. But the second part of that is deconstructing your faith. Faith is defined by Britannica as a strong belief or trust in something or someone. A strong belief or trust in something or someone. And the challenge or the issue that I have with many aspects of deconstruction is that people actually make the crucial mistake of not going far enough. Similar to those who built the Tower of Pisa, the, the issue is that they're not, they're not going deep enough. Because for us to first deconstruct our faith, we have to deconstruct the system that we are in. In other words, there's another faith system that our faith system exists in, and it's called a secular faith. A secular faith. Some of you are looking at me like, well, now, What? This is what Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin was a uh, British um, missionary who went to India 
for like decades and was doing ministry there and then retired and came back to his homeland in England and came back to a radically different culture that he left and was like, wow, we have to mission, we have to evangelize and we have to do mission work here because the culture has shifted so much. And this is what Leslie said. This is what he uh, observed. He said, the reason that modern culture is so challenging is that it sets up a whole range of idols, false gods, but unlike pagan societies, it denies what it's doing. It worships its idols, demanding faith in them and obedience to them, while at the same time insisting that it's just following the dictates of reason to see things as they really are without superstition. What Leslie Newbegin is saying is that the, the, the unique challenge in the West is that not that there's a place in which not everybody acknowledges or believes in Jesus, but that the specific idols that are represented here actually premise themselves as that they're not idols at all. It's just the way things are. We're just seeing things. So there's a story, there's an arc, there's a narrative that exists, but the problem is that the world teaches too. That there's a discipleship that happens not just in the church, but there's a discipleship that happens out there. There's a, a spiritual formation that is occurring. There's a, a, a deep aspect of philosophical understanding. And so first, we must deconstruct the faith that is secularism for us to understand how to deconstruct the faith that is Christianity. And I'm going to share with you four tenets of the secular faith and how to deconstruct them. So we can do in our second part is to then examine the faith that we're in. Y'all tracking with me? All right, here we go. First command. First commandment, thou shalt ignore the patterns of this world. <laughs> this is the interesting finesse of this pattern is the first one is to pretend that there is no pattern. It's just the way we see things. There was a movie a few years ago that came out, Usual Suspects, and the person, there was a character in it said, the greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. If I can convince you that there's no thing, nothing to see here, I'm just not, I have no bias, then that means that you're not even trying to, I, I don't even have to contend with you with a different point of view or a different point of reference. It's just the way it is. So for example, we hear stories, these narratives, right? These stories that say, well, this is what happened. What happened was there were phenomenon that the, we didn't have the technological facilities to be able to understand. And so humanity came up with beliefs and faith systems and superstitions to explain things that were unexplainable. And so what happened was because we didn't have telescopes and the technology to see that the um, earth revolved around the sun, somebody came up with this idea that God made it and they messed up and said that the earth, you know, sun revolved around the earth. The problem is that's not historically what happened. When you look at Galileo, you know, who recognized that there was a heliocentric universe and not a Earth-centered one, he was doing that. It only enhanced his faith perspective. He didn't go, wow, wait a minute. The Earth revolves around the sun? That must mean the Bible isn't true. He actually was trying to discover how God had created the universe. So then how do we get to this place of seeing this story that say, well, any kind of discovery or any kind of insight from the past, therefore, must somehow question doctrine? What well, is because of the reaction of the institution 
of the Church of Rome that at the time resisted Galileo, right? There, and again, it wasn't holistic. It was, there was debate among everybody that was happening, but those who won were the ones that had more power, more influence, and they, and they squelched and, and tried to suppress what he taught. And so as a result of that, universities of higher learning began to emerge, and because they saw the church as their biggest rival, they began to create alternative stories other than the Christian story so that they could therefore have their own influence and power in order to come up under the wing of this other force and create their own. And now we are in the midst of that battle. It's not neutral, though. It's what, uh, there's a, a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He wrote a book that was popular in academia and nowhere else because it's 900 pages. <laughs> it's called A Secular Age. But in it, Taylor basically answers or asks the question, how is it that we became a society where it was inconceivable not to believe in a spiritual world, not to believe in God, to one in which it's almost inconceivable to believe in one in such a short amount of time? And what he discovered was that it wasn't about scientific discovery at all. It was about a story that emerged, a story that developed, that somehow tried to create a narrative that says, we don't have a take. This is just objective. But here's the point. And this is the one now I the commandment is not to see it, that there is a pattern, is that that's just another take on the world. The idea that there's nothing else here, the idea that all we can do is study, and the idea that somehow we've evolved to this place of moving beyond spiritual convictions, that itself is a story. And it's a story that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves being susceptible to. But I, we don't buy this narrative, one, because it's just not historical. But two, it also it actually collapses on itself. Probably one of the greatest examples of this narrative is a um, British evolutionary uh, biologist and author named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is uh, one, uh, one of the leaders of what is called the new atheism. Now, as opposed to like the old atheism, which just said, I just happen to not believe in a God, but you know, that's my kind of take on the world. The new atheism isn't satisfied with that. The new atheism says that religion should not simply be tolerated. Instead, it should be countered and criticized and challenged. And this is where we get to that place. So this is what Dawkins said when someone asked him at a conference, well, how should we respond to Christians? Dawkins said mock them, ridicule them in public with contempt. That's his solution. And this is a teacher and a professor. So imagine coming into his classroom, and he's not saying that as explicitly in the class, but this is what his agenda is that he's pushing. And so that then taints the whole enterprise of the implications of the information that he's presenting. You see, in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, Dawkins says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, goes through this whole list of, uh, of slander. But here's where the story breaks down if you can just see past it. The problem with Dawkins, one of them, is that he is co-opting Christian ideas and morality to actually critique Christianity. This is what I mean. 
If I believe in only the only all that exists is the material world and that there we just got here by accident and that there is no supernatural being and that there's no then that means well, where does your morality come from? How do you call someone unjust if we just animals living and are the just the result of natural selection with no actual purpose or point to it other than just who we are? Wait, what do you mean unmoral? Where does your sense of morality come from? This is the problem that it just collides and falls apart, apart on itself. You see, human rights did not come from the Enlightenment. Human right, the idea of international universal human rights came from the idea of the Imago Dei, the teaching that we are every person was made in the image of God, and so as a result of that, had dignity and worth. That was not something that was widely taught or understood until Christians began to read the scripture and say, this is the implication of what we believe. So, the first step in our deconstruction is deconstructing, in deconstructing your faith is realizing that we all have one. The first step is realizing that we all are coming out of a place where there's a certain take about the world. And this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians about that take. See, this is the, the, the beautiful thing is we're not alone. Like in Rome, they were in the minority, the Christians were. This was not the majority opinion and perspective. In fact, they were ridiculed just like oftentimes we are. This is what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So there again, Paul is saying there are weapons in the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's the perspective. That's the challenge. And I think I love about that is not only does it recognize the fact that there are these strongholds, which is a military fortress that's kind of this sense of like almost an impenetrable uh, force, but he's saying, but we demolish those things with the power of God and take every thought captive. That's an action that says that we can take our own thoughts captive and make them submissive to Christ. But here's the warning for us. You will either... Interpret and understand the culture through the lens of the gospel or interpret the gospel through the lens of the culture. That's the challenge. That is what's before us. And so we have to deconstruct the belief that the world doesn't form us, that the world doesn't have its own perspective of a philosophy or of a sense of a morality or a sense of any of these things, like, like that is somehow neutral. It's not neutral. All right, second commandment. Thou shalt live thy best life. Some of y'all know this commandment. There was a viral post a few years ago uh, by someone named Shad Moss. Some of you may know him as Lil Bow Wow, or if you came along later in his career, as simply Bow Wow. Maybe just Shad. But in any case, he was posting this image on Instagram of him getting into a private plane and inside with a nice sports car on the outside and kind of like, yo, hashtag I'm going out to film in New York City and I'm doing my thing. The problem was a few moments later after he posts, another post was made by someone else who happened to see Shad in a plane that he was in. <laughs> and he wrote, so this guy, Lil Bow Wow, was on my flight to New York, but on Instagram, he posted a picture of a private jet captioning traveling to New York today, SMH. 
So this dude is out like on, on Southwest Airlines, just like everybody else, and getting on a plane, but he's stunting like he got a private jet. And what Power and, and I'm not doing this to clown him, but what he's doing is very similar to what many of us feel at least tempted to do on, on social media. And that is bow down to the idol of materialism and consumerism. To somehow believe that I am, my identity is connected to my living my best life, looking my best self, flexing, you know, just on the people, stunting on them, all the things. And it's also this idol of individual expression that somehow I need to, my, my purpose in life, the point of life is to somehow express myself to the fullest sense. And anything or anyone that would try to limit that or, or, or prevent that ought to be rejected and crushed. And there's multiple issues to this. One, the fact that a lot of times these companies are just promoting this sense of, uh, of a consumeristic idol because they want to sell more product. That has nothing to do with, you know, that's just their, their, their game plan. But on a deeper level, this idea is crushing us. This idea is falling, we, we fall under the weight of it because people know that, one, we can't sustain the weight of trying to live out our best self by ourselves. We were never intended to put on that responsibility. And so what happened, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a professor, and he was telling me how all these students are coming to him and are just kind of just racking their brain and are so upset because and, and have so much anxiety because they believe that the major that they're choosing, the classes that they're choosing, is, could either help them actualize who they really are or they can make the wrong mistake and just never happen and get destroyed by unmet potential. The other problem is that it doesn't reveal, it doesn't speak to the fact that we have, we're meant to do this in community. We were never meant to try to figure this out. And ultimately, what if God had a plan for you? And what if that plan of discovery takes a lot longer than in your 20s or in your 30s? Maybe you're still going through a process of development to help you to get to where you're supposed to be. God, if you look at Moses, he didn't even get to his calling until he was 80. The weight and the pressure of these things is suffocating us. It also creates a problem of morality. You know, the same friend was telling me that he had a friend who was married and, and was happy and, and then met somebody else and left his wife and got with this other person because he just felt committed to living his best self. These traps cause us to have a distorted version of ourselves and even of what sin is and what morality is. In 1 Peter 4, li listen to what Peter says. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. So the first thing he says is, okay, Christ suffered for you. So you know what you're supposed to do? Also endure suffering, endure hardship for him. And then he goes on to say, you didn't live, you didn't, you didn't believe in this thing. You didn't trust the gospel to continue on in your desires, he says, but for God's will, <laughs> verse three. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Oh, you don't know what that is? Okay, here it is. Carry on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. He was like, yeah, they were getting bent back then just as much as we are. This is nothing new. He says, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. 
it's not even new to be mocked and ridiculed for not doing what everybody else is doing. He's like, this is what this comes with the territory. We have to deconstruct the belief in hyper-individualism. God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he's made us to be a community. And oftentimes, you won't even understand fully who you are until you come into greater intimacy with God and to his people because they can speak into your life in a way that you never could. All right, third commandment. Thou shalt not trust the church. Thou shalt not trust the church. I've kind of already exposed the fact that some of these trends go back centuries to uh, these theological and philosophical battles coming from, and you can even see it in the name, the Enlightenment. <laughs> like they kind of branded, they won the branding battle of what happened there, the Enlightenment. But you see it in our pop culture. Uh, a few years ago, I started to like just make a list in my Evernote of just how Christian perceptions were in media and TV shows or movies that I was watching. And eventually I just stopped because it was like, I get it, it's like 95% negative. So I don't need to keep doing this exercise. So you got movies like, uh, or shows like The Handmaiden's Tale. And The Handmaiden's Tale essentially depicts this dystopian future in which a theocratic group of rulers, rulers who are ruling the country and the, and the government through what this distorted sense of belief that is very similar to Christianity, and the end result are women not having autonomy over their bodies and just being violently you know, assaulted and sexually assaulted and all of these things and just this weird cultic vibe. Or you have shows like Greenleaf that just kind of just shows dysfunction and just drama and just corruption, right? Like, it's just, And here's the thing. What I am not saying is that there are real grievances that people should have with the church, that there are real issues of reasons for distrust. I'm not saying, you would have to be blind to not say that and not be aware of the scandals that have emerged. But this is what I'm saying, that there's an intentional focus only on the negative and never on the positive in order to undermine the actual confidence that people have in faith. There was a study done by the University of Pennsylvania that actually showed that when they looked at churches around West Philadelphia, that a church was generally speaking, and this was a congregation of about 200 people, 100 people, which is most of the churches, like you know, mega churches are like 3%, 2% of the total churches in the country, but that gets all the shine. But in any case, in these small little churches, 200 people, that they provided the equivalent to about $2 million a year in services to their community. When you looked at childcare, when you looked at different aspects of, you know, helping people uh, through with food banks and all of these things, you never seen anything about that. But politicians can be bad without us assuming that anarchy is the only option. Journalists can mess up without assuming that all media should not be consumed. Rappers and artists can mess up without us assuming that the entire genre is all terrible. But when we get to the church, corrupt leaders mean none of the church anywhere can be trusted. And the reason why is it's a proxy war to try to make a deeper point. So we must deconstruct distrust in the church. Now again, I'm not saying that there aren't real grievances in church hurt and things that need to be worked out. Absolutely, we need to work through those things. But what I'm saying is that if we zoom out and see, understand the, and deconstruct what's happening in our culture, we see that where some of that is coming from. Okay, commandment four. 
Last one. Thou shalt not, I should say, when I say last one, last one we're going to cover. This is not the last one that exists in the culture. There are many, but just for the sake of time, I boil down to what I think are some of the four most important. Fourth commandment, thou shalt trust only in what thou sees. Thou shalt trust only in what thou sees. There are a couple of terms that are used to describe this uh, perspective. One is the idea of materialism. Materialism is a, is, is a perspective that says the only thing that I can physically see or examine through a microscope, those are the only things that are real. Anything else does not exist. The other, and what this, the other is this story, though, of progression that has happened. I kind of alluded to it earlier. Once upon a time, there were a group of people who didn't have science and technology. But then, as they began to discover more things, life got better and happier. And then they started to reject the previous superstitions that they had because they had more information. That's the story. The, the problem is that it's kind of been able to get po holes poked in it over time. You know, like there was that whole thing of like the atom bomb that was created that the scientists who were just trying to do some progress realized, what have we wrought? We actually have created the means for us to destroy each other as humans. Technology ain't always, and, and this is what King said about it. He said, we have to be careful when there's a society whose technological advancement is outstrip, outstrips their moral compass. It's not just enough to know that I can do something, but it's like, should I? Cloning? What should we do with that? Like, what's going on? Like, like there, if you don't have any context, then that becomes very, very dangerous. And we saw this in New York City. I was watching, um, I was reading this article, and I saw this incredible image of this, uh, this structure that sunlight was shining and beaming through the windows. It had these high arching ceilings. And I was like, wow, look at this place. What is this? And then I found out this was the old Penn Station. Now, for those that have been to Penn Station before and seen it in recent times, it don't look like that. What it looks like is I, I, I feel the anxiety as soon as I get off the train. Like, gird your loins. You're going to be around other people, bumping into them in this very corridors that they're always trying to fix. And what they're trying to do, and what happens is there was a dude that said, Vincent Scully, he said, we used to emerge from the trains like gods, and now we scurry like rats. <laughs> like, that was his description of what happened. And the movement toward modernization took such a hit because people realized we just destroyed like an incredible architectural wonder because we just assumed that somehow modernization was going to make everything better. Ooh, so now we got a digital screen. And the problem is when we have this perspective of progress through just our materialistic and scientific, scientific ways, then it creates a problem. Now, now, I also want to make this clear distinction. There's a distinction between science and scientism. Science is the very healthy and, and noble pursuit of information through the scientific method and discovery. Science asks, asks the question how something happens, right? Photosynthesis. We remember the, you know, the science projects from back in the day or gravity or just trying to explain how things work. But these things have ventured into scientism, which is different. Scientism doesn't just ask what happened, but then it pours meaning into the why, into the what. And that is where we get confused. So it's not enough to, so for someone to say um, that there is a cosmos and that there are multiple universes that exist. But then they go, well, actually, that must mean the Bible ain't true. Because it only speaks of one. And it's like, well, wait a minute. 
this isn't even built to do the thing that you're trying to conclude that it's supposed to do. So I don't, there's not a, a problem with science and faith. They actually um, very much run together because ironically, prior, a Christian worldview gave people the confidence that the world was ordered and stable in the first place. Prior to that, other belief systems had said that there was just chaos and it was just randomness. And it was like, no, actually, if God created the world and he's good and it's stable, then that must mean that we can actually have inquiry in the first place. So that's the challenge that we're up against is this way in which we think or we're being taught to believe that somehow everything in my life can be analyzed, understood, and best lived out through materialism as opposed to through the lens of understanding there's a supernatural dynamic behind us. And the ironic thing about it is we all consciously know aspects about love, about joy, about happiness. These are not things that a mere academic pursuit or a pursuit, uh, explanation about physicality can happen. Morality and what we are supposed to do, the fact that violence and, and war and things like that are wrong, none of those things have anything to do with a scientific method, and yet and still, that is what is oftentimes applied. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, uses this illustration. He says that lay not any other foundation except for Jesus Christ. How, do you, how are you going to build? How are you going to build your life? How are you going to build your understanding? We learn from the Tower of Pisa that if I must build on the right foundation for the whole building to actually live out its purpose. So tonight, today, this morning, <laughs> I want us to think about not just doubting your faith, but doubting your doubts. What is the context in which these doubts emerge? And so we have to deconstruct doubt to build faith. Faith that there are, there's a story that we're being formed into in our culture, but there's a greater story that is actually true. And this is why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because that transformation that is, allows us to see reality as it really is. You know, not everybody was at Easter this past Sunday and I, don't, I mean, not like here, but the first Resurrection Sunday. <clears throat> there was a guy named Thomas, one of the disciples, one of the people that spent three years with Jesus. And he wasn't there. And so when the rest of the disciples was like, hey, we just saw Jesus, he's back. He was like, I don't believe it. Matter of fact, I won't believe it until I have some scientific evidence, until I empirically touch him and put my hand through the nails where the nails were till I touch where they pierced his side, I'm not going to believe it. And the thing that's amazing is that when Jesus appeared to him, like, what up, Thomas? He didn't rebuke him. Like, I kind of probably would have flexed on him, like, ah, a little bit. But he just said, Thomas, touch, touch my hands. Touch my side. And Thomas responds and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are you because you have seen me and you have believed. But more blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. 
He recognized there was some value, and, and Thomas went on to be a great missionary in India and shared his faith and, and told that story. But that point that Jesus makes is, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, is, of course, where we are. So I just want to invite you to think about this aspect of deconstructing faith. Because if you're here, you, like many of us, may have struggled, may be struggling with how to make sense of all that's going on in our world and all the controversies surrounding the church and all of the political issues and social issues and all these things. And it may have rocked you. Maybe there's been people who you looked up to and, and, and they let you down. And those things are understandable. And Jesus doesn't even condemn us for it. He actually leans into us and says, I get it. When the father of the young boy who was sick came to Jesus and Jesus said, do you believe that I can make him well? And he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's the type of honesty that has helped me in my own journey. I believe, but help my unbelief. This is an opportunity for us to recognize and be able to deconstruct the faith system that we've been indoctrinated into, oftentimes without even knowing it. There are perspectives and there are points of views and there are stories that we are being told that we don't even realize. And the good thing that Jesus invites us into is not a rebuke, but an opportunity to see with different eyes so that we can trust him in a different way. And I will just leave you with this. It's been helpful for me to doubt my doubts. And the reason why reality conforms with my understanding of what I've been revealed in scripture is because of what Jesus did in my own life. Like I can just look at the empirical evidence of my life and realize who I was and then how God changed me and how God revealed truth to me and that sense of his presence that I've had throughout time. And that's a start for us to recognize who we are and whose we are. Would you stand with me? I want to give us an opportunity to respond uh, to this message because there's something about the activity of making a decision that solidifies something for us. It's part of the reason why God does all these tactile things with us, like baptism and getting into the water or eating communion, because he knows that we are both physical and spiritual beings. And so in that same vein, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes, if you would. And if you're here, and if you're under the sound of my voice and you've understood that, wow, there is a faith system of this world that I have just believed in. I didn't even know it was there. Um, but I am now want to trust Jesus then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And one last thing I'll say on that is what this is not saying is that you should therefore check all the questions that you ever might have in the recesses of your heart and just blindly trust everything else. Like, no, that's not how the process works. There might be a, a process of like, okay, I'm going to trust. I'm going to take this first step 
but I still got questions, and that's all right. Jesus invites those. He says, and they shall know the truth, and the truth shall set them free. So if you want to make that decision for the first time and, and, and step from a secular faith to one in Christ, you just raise your hand. Just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I see that hand. Praise God. Anyone else? Second call is maybe you are in that same place as that father that said, I believe, but help my unbelief. That there's just been a sense of pressure. You felt the pressure of the of wanting of conforming to the pattern of this world. And you want your mind to be transformed. And you just want to say, yes, I just want some prayer. And I want the, the, the return to the joy of my salvation. Just raise your hand if that's you. And you, you just want that sense of just a, a, a specific, I see those hands, a, a, just a response to this message that says, I trust you, God. There are things that I don't understand and I'm going to lean into those, but the things that I do understand are greater, are more significant, and are more real. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this message and thank you for the truth that you tell us a better story. And I pray for those that raise their hands uh, that you would to confirm to them that first step that they've made. And for those of us who are here and we are around folks who are struggling too, would you give us the words? Would you give us the insights? Would you give us the perspectives to just encourage people to not just doubt their faith, but to doubt their doubts? In Jesus' name, amen. I will just ask you this before we transition to worship. If you raised your hand, I would just encourage you to come to myself or Pastor Josh after service, and, and we just want to talk with you and give you some resources and encourage you in your walk. Let's continue to worship God together. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.